Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Welcome to this edition of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the 2017 IDSA Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Infectious Diarrhea, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. Acute gastroenteritis is a frequent cause of outpatient visits as well as hospitalizations in the United States. There are over 175 million outpatient visits, nearly a half a million hospitalizations, and over 5,000 deaths attributable to gastroenteritis in the United States. The lifetime risk of being discharged from the hospital with the diagnosis of gastroenteritis is actually about 12%. The estimated prevalence of diarrhea in the prior month among adults uh, is actually about 5%, the rate being more or less depending on age. Uh, Most acute episodes in previously healthy, immunocompetent adults are of short duration and they're self-resolving. They're usually of viral etiology or unknown etiologies. Those episodes of diarrhea that have a defined course, probably one of the most significant advances over the last decade has been the introduction of rotavirus vaccine, which has substantially decreased the burden of gastroenteritis in infants and young adults. Joining us today are two members of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. Andy Shane and Dr. Larry Pickering. Dr. Shane is an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases, the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Shane. Thank you. And Dr. Larry Pickering is adjunct professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, is a past senior advisor to the director of the National Center for Immunizations and Respiratory Diseases of the CDC, and past executive secretary of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. He's editor of five editions of the AAP Red Book and co-editor of the four editions of Principles and Practice of Pediatric infectious diseases. Welcome, Dr. Pickering. Thank you, Neil. It's good to participate. Uh, Let's start with a question that most clinicians ask. And and Dr. Pickering, let me ask you to address this question. When seeing a patient with diarrhea, what what do the guidelines say about when to perform diagnostic testing for patients with diarrhea? And when is diagnostic testing unnecessary? I think it's important to step back and look at two areas. One is the individual person who has diarrhea, and secondly, whether there's a public health consideration or concern. There are three areas of the individual person that need to be considered. One is whether the person is young, uh, particularly in a pediatric person like a newborn infant, uh, whether there's elderly or whether there's immunocompromised condition uh, of the individual. Secondly, whether this uh, outbreak of diarrhea or or, uh, episode of diarrhea is part of an outbreak. And thirdly, whether there's uh, bloody diarrhea. And of course, people with fever or bloody diarrhea should be evaluated for enteropathogens because antimicrobial therapy uh, in these individuals may be indicated. So I think that that the infectious disease guidelines has two specific tables in it which are very helpful. One is 
um, showing clinical presentations suggested of infectious uh, etiologies, and therefore the finding is given, and then the likely pathogens associated with these specific clinical findings are listed. For instance, um, if a patient presents with diarrhea and uh, a significant abdominal pain, uh, shigatoxin-producing E. coli, salmonella, shigella, campylobacter, yersinia are some of the organisms that should be considered. The second table shows the laboratory diagnosis for organisms associated with infectious diarrhea. And this is very nice because it gives the specific etiologic agent that should be considered and then the diagnostic procedures that are recommended to make the diagnosis of that specific etiologic agent. So that sounds great. So it really seems like for that person, which is probably the vast majority of people presenting with diarrhea that's lasting a few days, that's non-bloody, not part of an outbreak, no diagnostic testing is needed. But for specific scenarios, uh, bloody diarrhea, diarrhea with a lot of abdominal pain, or where public health information becomes important, we should be testing. Is that, is that a, a correct summary of that? Yeah, I think that's a very nice summary. Most patients that present with diarrhea do not need to have uh, diagnostic testing, but the areas that you outlined, clearly diagnostic testing should be considered, both for helpful for the individual person who has diarrhea and then also to address any public health uh, concern uh, that may be there. That's helpful. Let me ask the next question to Dr. Shane. Dr. Shane, let's yes. now discuss treatment, focusing on the decision about when antimicrobial treatment is indicated and when should we not be thinking about uh, specific treatment. Yes, well, thanks, Neil. You know, Larry set this up very well because many of the um, guidance for um, deciding when antimicrobial treatment is indicated is uh, very similar to the guidance that uh, is suggested for uh, thinking about when diagnostic testing should be indicated. So once again, the person, um, the age is very important at uh, each end of the spectrum, both younger children and older adults. The symptoms that the person may be manifesting, including uh, systemic symptoms, uh, bloody diarrhea, those will also be indications that antimicrobial therapy uh, should be considered. And then once again, um, the environment and whether or not uh, the patient or person is in a situation where um, decreasing shedding uh, may have an impact um, on uh, the environment and also the potential for transmission of an organism. Um, an area of controversy is the consideration for treatment of people with infections that may be attributed to a toxin-producing organism, um, such as uh, sugar toxin um, producing E. coli, uh, 0157, um, or other uh, toxin-producing organisms. Unfortunately, at the time of presentation, that is often not known. And so in those situations where there may be a concern for a toxin-producing organism, uh, there may be certain classes of antimicrobials that uh, should not be used and or a consideration if the patient or person is not um, overly ill, uh, considering waiting until uh, testing results have been obtained before consideration of uh, antimicrobial use. So just to, to understand, so for that person with, say, bloody diarrhea, enteric diarrhea, uh, if they're not that sick, waiting till we have a specific diagnosis, but if they are very sick, 
maybe consideration of early treatment? Um, Exactly. And also the consideration, uh, there have been some studies that have shown a uh, predisposition potentially to the development of hemolytic uremic syndrome is the condition that we're concerned about with certain classes of antimicrobials and not with others. So thinking about uh, what the optimal antimicrobial would be, obviously you always want to try to treat as uh, narrowly as, as possible when considering antimicrobial choice. Okay, that's that that's helpful. And and for that person with bloody diarrhea, before you have a um, uh, a culture back, if you're treating empirically, are there specific antimicrobials recommended? Well, one um, antimicrobial that has been used quite wise, widely is uh, azithromycin, um, and um, that is a, a one that has not been shown to be. Um, associated with some of the other uh, manifestations of um, treatment of patients with toxin-producing uh, E. coli and would probably be a good empiric choice for many ages and also for, for many conditions. In the guidelines, we've tried to outline some of these recommendations in Table 6, uh, which is a table that we put together with recommended antimicrobial agents divided up by pathogen, so the indication uh, divided by bacterial, parasitic, and fungal organisms with the first choice alternative and some comments or considerations for the clinician who is considering the use of treatment uh, for those particular organisms. That, that makes sense. And I guess the other fairly common uh, area, you mentioned parasitic infections in, in the United States, perhaps most commonly Giardia. Uh, there, that's a person who might just have a longer course, and eventually you test for it. And there we would want to wait to see the results of uh, testing before we treat. Is that correct? Well, it, it may be. Um, it, it depends on the situation. Um, oftentimes, Giardia may travel with other um, parasitic organisms as well. So um, having a diagnostic test might be um, helpful in these particular situations so that you can optimally target your therapy uh, to, the, uh, to the organism. Um, and uh, for Giardia and Cyclospora and Cryptosporidium uh, and um, Cytoospora, those are the ones that we would most commonly see in the United States. And there are some differences between uh, recommended therapy for those uh, four uh, organisms. And so having a diagnostic test might be very helpful. Um, oftentimes, people with parasitic um, diarrhea are not critically ill, and that is something where one could uh, potentially wait for a diagnostic test to optimally direct the, the uh, treatment. That's really helpful. Thanks so much. Larry, let me ask you the next question. The uh, critical issue for uh, most people with episodes of acute diarrhea is maintaining hydration or restoring hydration. Now, clearly, oral rehydration has been uh, one of those incredible advances in, in public health interventions worldwide, simple yet incredibly effective. Uh, can you discuss oral rehydration therapy for us, and uh, as well as recommendations that we should be giving to patients about eating during episodes of diarrhea? Sure. Um, first of all, people of all ages uh, with acute diarrhea should be evaluated for dehydration because 
everybody with diarrhea is dehydrated. It's just the degree of dehydration that needs a real consideration. And as I said earlier, this is particularly important for the young, uh, the elderly, and the immunocompromised. Now, if you look at um, rehydration, um, oral rehydration solutions, as you mentioned, uh, is recommended as the first-line therapy uh, of mild to moderate dehydration in infants, uh, children, and adults uh, with acute diarrhea from any cause. It doesn't matter what the cause of the diarrhea is. And people with moderate to uh, mild to moderate dehydration associated with vomiting uh, or severe diarrhea, if it can be given in the face of, of vomiting. Secondly, after oral rehydration, which is the recommended therapy, nasogastric administration of oral rehydration solution may be considered uh, in infants, children, and adults with moderate dehydration who cannot tolerate oral intake or in children with normal mental status. But most of the times in pediatrics, children can tolerate uh, oral intake of the oral rehydration solution, but it takes a lot of time and effort to do that, but it's critical uh, to put in that time and effort. And then the third me method of rehydration, of course, is uh, isotonic intravenous fluids, such as lactated ringers or normal uh, saline, um, when there is the uh, need to do that, when patients are specifically dehydrated, uh, in shock, have altered mental status, uh, or in the failure uh, of oral rehydration uh, therapy, which hopefully is uh, not too common. Um, when patients have ileus, uh, of course, that's another mechanism or another reason to give the uh, intravenous uh, uh, fluid therapy. Now, in severe dehydration, the IV therapy uh, should be continued until the pulse and perfusion and mental status uh, have all normalized. The patient begins to awaken um, and has no risk factors for aspiration or no evidence of ileus. Then uh, the oral rehydration solution can be, can be instituted. Once the patient is rehydrated uh, after the uh, oral therapy or even the intravenous therapy, maintenance fluid should be administered and ongoing losses in stools from infants, uh, children, and adults um, should, be re should be replaced. So that's the rehydration. Now, feeding after rehydration is usually done as soon as possible, particularly in infants who are breastfeeding. Uh, human milk should be continued, if all possible, in infants and children through the diarrhea episode, um, and the resumption of an age-appropriate diet is recommended during uh, or um, immediately after the rehydration process is complete. So we want to get the, uh, the fluids into the people to get them rehydrated no matter what age, and then uh, when appropriate, uh, uh, the therapy should be started with regard to um, uh, eating and, and, and return to normal diet. Now, the guidelines have a very nice table, Table 7, which outlines the fluid and nutritional management of diarrhea. It gives the degree of dehydration, uh, what rehydration therapy is recommended, whether oral or IV, and then the replacement of losses during this maintenance therapy. Um, and that sort of summarizes very nicely the approach to the various patients who uh, may be uh, dehydrated. Of course, most people with diarrhea are somewhat dehydrated, but this gives uh, a nice approach to those individuals. Larry, I also like the way that, you know, your criteria for using IV fluids was pretty severe dehydration. And I can tell you yeah. clinically, one of the things that I notice is our residents often have a lower threshold for going to IVs than uh, often is necessary. People, and, and your point is such a good one, you have to sit with mom, you have to talk to her about how... Uh, 
hard it is, but important to get those fluids in. And oral rehydration therapy works well in third world nations for you know, kids with cholera, they work pretty well for he- here for the types of diarrhea that we see in the United States until someone is uh, pretty severely uh, rehydrated. But as you said, it, it just takes a lot of work. It, it does take a lot of it does take a lot of work, Neil, and I think that work is clearly worthwhile putting in. Uh, uh, and as you alluded to, in in developing countries where IV therapy may not be as readily available, uh, oral therapy does work, and it takes time and patience. So not only the in pediatrics, not only the oral rehydration solution, but breastfeeding is also absolutely critical because it not only provides the uh, the liquids and the fluids that are necessary, but there are many many. Perf- protective factors in human milk, which are important in uh, preventing uh, diarrheal disease in infants. That's a great point. Let me ask Andy, let me ask you the next question. How about the place of uh, other uh, ancillary approaches, things like anti-motility agents, anti-nausea agents, and uh, even probiotics, which is something that we're, we're probably asked more about from patients than think about proactively to do? Andy? Yes, so um, thank you, Neil. Um, You know, we looked, uh, the guidelines committee looked at those um, ancillary uh, products, and, uh, you know, there has been quite a lot of um, case reports and discussions about uh, systematic reviews about the use of these agents. Uh, The challenges, and also with probiotics, there haven't been uh, a significant number of um, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials um, with them. The other challenge also with many of these um, ancillary agents is that there's a wide variation between products. Uh, In probiotics, for example, we know that uh, there are likely some um, effects that are uh, uh, product-related and uh, the use of one particular uh, strain or organism may have a different impact or different effect in a child versus an adult and for uh, virally associated diarrhea versus antimicrobial associated diarrhea. So um, this developing guidelines for the recommendation of a, a single product is, is very challenging. Um, there are some key um, guidance, though, that we have put forth in the guidelines. One is that we do not recommend that anti-motility drugs, um, for example, loperamide, um, be used in children under the age of 18 with acute diarrhea, and there is some quite strong evidence to support that recommendation. Um, loperamide may have a role in immunocompetent adults um, uh, or anyone um, who uh, is having diarrhea symptoms that need to be controlled. You would obviously want to avoid the, its use in anybody who might have uh, megacolon or um, any type of inflammatory diarrhea or diarrhea with fever. Um, anti-nausea and anti-emetic uh, um, uh, agents um, may help with the um, tolerance of oral rehydration and so may have a role in um, in that area if you are trying to um, orally rehydrate a patient or somebody um, who uh, uh, may be able to tolerate the oral rehydration uh, with the um, use of these uh, these agents. 
with um, probiotics, um, there's uh, the potential for their use both as a treatment once uh, antimicrobial-associated diarrhea has developed or diarrhea has developed or in the uh, empiric use before the actual diarrheal symptoms uh, have exhibited themselves. And there's, there's different levels of evidence for using probiotics both for treatment and or for the prevention um, of diarrhea. And then finally, oral zinc supplementation, which has been looked at in um, uh, endemic settings, uh, does seem to reduce the duration of diarrhea, especially in young children uh, when there is a high prevalence of zinc deficiency. So zinc supplementation may be beneficial in helping to restore the underlying uh, gut flora uh, in a similar way that uh, probiotics might have the same effect. Fantastic. I, 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 that, that, that's important information, and a lot of that is uh, new information, certainly zinc, for uh, most of us uh, who practice clinical medicine. Larry, from a public health point of view, wh- what measures should we be doing to help prevent transmission of uh, organisms that cause enteric diarrhea? How should we be advising our patients? Yeah, there, there are several strategies, uh, of course, as you mentioned, including uh, public health measures. Uh, which are extremely beneficial in preventing uh, transmission of various enteropathogens associated with infectious diarrhea. And I'll just like to name a few of them. And most importantly, in all areas, is hand hygiene. And hand hygiene should be performed, of course, after using the toilet, after changing diapers, before and after preparing food, uh, before eating, uh, before handling animals, after going, children go to petting zoos. Um, so anything in the public setting uh, where there's a potential exposure, hand hygiene is critical. Um, secondly is infection control measures, uh, including the use of gloves and gowns and hand hygiene in the hospital, uh, are outlined very clearly in most hospitals, but sometimes aren't uh, completely followed. And, and that clearly needs to be done, particularly uh, when we care for the three high-risk groups of people, the, the young, the elderly, and the immunocompromised. Um, one of the one of the others, the third really important area is appropriate food safety practices uh, um, are are recommended to avoid you know cross contamination of foods uh, so that outbreaks uh, can be prevented. Um, and this goes from buying the foods in the grocery store to taking them home and appropriate preparing them in the home, and also hopefully all restaurants uh, utilize appropriate preparation of foods um, uh, in their in their kitchens. Um, healthcare providers uh, also should direct educational efforts toward um, all people with diarrhea on how to minimize the spread of that diarrhea, and particularly in patients, as I said, that are in, in the high-risk groups. Um, ill people, uh, on, next on our list, is that ill people uh, should avoid uh, swimming, uh, water-related activities, sexual contact with other people when symptoms occur. And I know that our local pool, um, every week or so, the the infant pool is closed down because of an accident that, that happened in the pool. So um, people who have diarrheal disease should not go swimming. And that seems very obvious, but sometimes is not uh, followed. Now, yeah. there's other preventive measures, and there's three vaccines that are available for uh, prevention of diarrheal disease. As you mentioned earlier, rotavirus vaccine has been absolutely amazing, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And of course, this is in the 
uh, childhood immunization schedule and should be administered to uh, all infants uh, without a known contraindication. And that's uh, a very strong recommendation. Rotavirus vaccine has prevented uh, hundreds of thousands of cases of diarrhea worldwide and, and thousands and thousands of deaths. Uh, typhoid vaccine and um, cholera vaccine as travel vaccines are also available uh, in the United States and clearly discussed uh, in these in these guidelines. One last yeah. thing is, of course, in the public health, health aspect is that uh, there are a list of nationally notifiable organisms uh, and several of the uh, diarrheal-causing organisms are on that list. So uh, all diseases that are listed in the table of nationally notifiable disease uh, surveillance systems um, at the national level should be reported uh, through your local and state health departments, and then they will send them on, on to the state. This is very helpful in evaluating outbreaks that may be occurring of diarrhea, uh, and the health departments uh, uh, utilize these data for uh, many other monitoring areas. So it's important to, uh, for all of us to report um, diseases in the diarrhea realm as well in other areas that are on the nationally notifiable disease list. And that is important. Uh, Andy, let me ask you the next question. Can you discuss some of the post-infectious manifestations of diarrheal disease? Sure, Neil. Um, and this is actually, as a infectious disease physician, one of the um, interesting and exciting um, practice uh, um, concepts when we're asked to consult on a patient um, who may have an extra-intestinal manifestation, it's actually oftentimes very rewarding to be able to link um, this extra-intestinal manifestation potentially to a uh, GI pathogen. Um, and the manifestations are very broad. We've listed some of the most common ones in Table 4 um, of the guidelines as well as the organisms that are commonly associated with some of the manifestations, and they can range from the skin being erythema nodosum, um, kidney involvement with glomerulonephritis, um, Guillain-Barre is one that we typically think about being associated with uh, Campylobacter, hemolytic anemia also with Campylobacter and Yersinia, and as I mentioned in the discussion about treatment, uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome, which we often think about as being associated with uh, toxin-producing organisms such as STEC and Shigella dysenteriae serotype 1. Um, IgA nephropathy has also been associated with Campylobacter and then reactive arthritis with a number of different organisms. Uh, Post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome is one that we commonly see, um, especially with Campylobacter, Salmonella, Shigella, STEC, and oftentimes uh, Giardia. Meningitis has been associated with Listeria and Salmonella, um, and we have seen intestinal perforation uh, with a number of organisms, uh, especially with Salmonella typhi and uh, aortitis and osteomyelitis, as well as some extravascular deep tissue foci have been associated with uh, salmonella and yersinia. So I think it's very important for the clinician to think about and um, consider a gastrointestinal pathogen when some of these manifestations may be seen. Oftentimes, these manifestations may develop weeks to months um, after the initial infection, so it really takes a very astute clinician to think about and consider a gastrointestinal um, predisposing factor for some of these uh, manifestations. 
That's really something because we don't typically think of uh, all of those things related to diarrhea. And it really uh, reinforces those fundamentals of taking a complete history and, and going back in time to when necessary to really search for inciting causes. Um, let me ask the next and final question to Larry. Uh, Larry, finally, are there, are there any pearls or things to be aware of with regard to specific organisms? They're not only pearls, but diamonds, sapphires, and rubies uh, contained in this uh, diarrheal guidelines. And uh, a few of them I'd like to mention. Uh, the first is uh, the figure that is there very nicely consolidates considerations when evaluating people uh, with infectious diarrhea with regard to the areas to which they may be exposed, such as child care facilities, long-term care facilities, including nursing homes, hospitalization, and so on. These are important factors to ask about when evaluating a person with uh, uh, diarrheal disease. And then there are several, seven tables uh, that list various aspects. Um, several of the very interesting ones are uh, post-infectious manifestations associated with diarrhea, clinical presentations supportive of infectious diarrhea, and so on. So the, the tables, I think, very concisely outline all of the material that is included in the uh, written parts uh, of the diarrhea uh, guidelines. And then there's one last thing that, uh, that Andy and I'd like to comment on, and that is the uh, culture-independent diagnostic tests, which are really becoming available in many areas infectious, in infectious diseases. And with the increasing availability of these rapid and really very highly sensitive diagnostic panels, um, a likely um, microbial etiology of diarrheal disease uh, can now be established in more patients. So we're going to start seeing more patients with diarrheal disease being diagnosed with specific organisms. Now, this can accomplish three things. One is it facilitates appropriate treatment. Uh, secondly, it avoids unnecessary antimicrobial therapy. And then lastly, it expedites recognition of foodborne, uh, waterborne, and other outbreaks, which allow our public health colleagues to become uh, more involved in investigating earlier some of the diarrhea outbreaks that occur. Now, the, the issue uh, also has a couple potential downsides. Number one is we will probably begin seeing organisms in these panels that we're not used to diagnosing uh, in patients with diarrheal disease, enterotoxigenic E. coli, enteropathogenic E. coli, or a couple, and there will be uh, probably several more. So we're going to have to learn how uh, to parcel out which of the organisms in the, in the, uh, uh, the diagnostic stool testing are important to treat. And then lastly, of course, is that uh, with these uh, culture-independent diagnostic tests, there needs to be some sort of a, a reflex culturing so that we have some susceptibilities of various organisms that may be identified, such as Shigella and Salmonella and Campylobacter, where we may want to provide therapy. We want to provide optimal therapy uh, with the appropriate uh, antimicrobial agent. So um, those are several of the very exciting things in the document. Uh, I think people who read the diarrheal guidelines won't be able to put it down from start to beginning, and uh, we hope that it will be very helpful in the provision of care of children and adults with diarrheal disease. 
That, that, that is great, Larry. I found them great guidelines. They're incredibly well organized and uh, filled with information. And, and, and thanks for going over those exciting uh, additional things. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today. We discussed uh, when to look at diagnostic testing for diarrhea, when not to, when to consider treatment. We talked about ancillary management, oral rehydration therapy. We talked about prevention. And we talked about some of the exciting new non-culture-based tests. Uh, for more information on the IDSA guidelines on the management of diarrhea, a full version of the guidelines is available uh, at the IDSA website, www.idsociety.org. Uh, Andy, Larry, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Thank you very much, Neil. We had a wonderful and enjoyable experience. For the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thank you for listening.